are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. Because as we are learning in the book of Acts, it's not that we don't want to try to do well. We want to try to do well. We do practice these things, but you know what? What we're learning in the book of Acts is that God is calling imperfect people to work in Jesus' perfect work. And because we have a perfect Savior who does all things well, because the Spirit of God never makes a mistake in ministry, we're actually like encouraged then to make pretty bold or loud errors. We're fine with that. We're totally okay with that. Much like we learned last week, the Spirit of God is sufficient. Uh, if you remember what we looked at last week, the Spirit of God called Paul and Silas into Macedonia in a way that none of us expected. Really, Paul and Silas did not even expect it. Remember, they had, they had other plans. They were going to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit's like, nah. They were going to go into Mysia. They're like, nope, no, 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 I have, a, I have a goal for you. Go into Europe. Go into Macedonia. And Paul had determined that in light of the church's uh, recommendation from the story, really in light of the Spirit's moving that, hey, it's to Macedonia that we're going to go because God has a mission for us to, to be a part of. And this really begins Paul's second missionary journey. But all of this is couched in the understanding that God is doing this thing from start to finish. Though he uses imperfect people to get his perfect work done, let's make no mistake, it is God's perfect work. And we can tend to get ourselves in the way. We can tend to doubt what God's doing. We can tend to miss what God's doing. But make no mistake, God is at work. And that's encouraging for people like us who are starting a new work, who have seen this begun by God at the beginning. And guess what? We hope and pray and believe that it's going to be sustained by God, even in the middle of our missteps. Even when we take a misstep, even when we don't see things clearly, the Spirit of God directs. That's our entire hope our entire thing. But all of this demonstrates that God's working is a work of grace. That is, it's a work of free gift. It's not based on merit. It's not based on performance. God doesn't use perfect people because he only has imperfect people to choose from. That's all the people that are out there. So he only chooses to use imperfect people, which is good news for us. And we ourselves have found ourselves in this ministry, really on the outskirts of God's grace. Or, uh, even as Darylin kind of said a couple weeks ago, the outer rim of God's grace, right? We are, we are not the Jerusalem. We are not the Judea and Samaria. We here in the West, we are the uttermost parts of the earth that God has brought his gospel to. And so we really stand as a testament to the scope of God's grace. Uh, even as the mission has continued over time, we have seen the concentric circles of God's targeted grace kind of rubbed out, those, those lines and those measures rubbed out. And now he includes everybody who's living and breathing. 
Everybody is a target of God's grace. Everyone's a recipient of God's grace. Everybody is equal at the foot of the cross. And we certainly saw this last week. Well, guess what? We're in for another treat tonight. Because it's the same thing. We are going to the furthest regions of the outer rim that we have ever seen. And we have three particular stories for us tonight. It's a longer portion. But in these three particular stories, I believe the only reason they are in our text is to help us rub out the edges of our understanding of God's grace. Which, I hope you're able to find yourself in one of these stories. Or actually, maybe even all three to some degree. But I hope you are not just thinking about Lydia and, a, and a, an abused servant girl and a Philippian jailer. I hope you are able to find John Mayton and Quentin Sipe and Melissa Charlton. I, I hope you're able to find yourself as one of the ones who have been targeted by the extreme mercy of God, that you find yourself here. So tonight we're going to see that God delights in saving people from all walks of life. And not just saving at the beginning of conversion, but you understand the salvation experience isn't just conversion. The promise of God in salvation is the whole kit and caboodle. It's the whole thing from start to finish. That which God starts, he finishes. That which God sanctifies, he also glorifies. So we can be sure that if you are one of those ones that God has converted, has brought into the faith through Jesus, you are set forever. The scope of God's grace isn't just for all people, but it's for all time for those all people. And I hope you're able to see and find yourself right there in this story. If you're like me, it's often easy to find so many excuses as to why God shouldn't have to love you. There are times I know I look in the mirror and I don't particularly like what I see. How I interact with my kids or how I interact with my wife or how I work day to day or if I think about some of the performance of my life in the past in certain areas of my life through the school age years or even as uh, I think about my high school and growing up years, it's, it's easy for me to give all these excuses as to why I should be able to wiggle out of the grace of God that somehow God shouldn't include me in his wonderful plan of salvation. And praise God, the spirit of Jesus never lets you get away with it. He doesn't let you wiggle out of the giant circles of his grace and he doesn't let you forget that it's not just at one point in your life. It is for all time that the Spirit of God is working his salvation in you and through you. He won't let you get away with it. So tonight, we get to find ourselves inside the concentric circles of God's grace and say, Hallelujah for the cross. That's really the whole reason that these stories are in the text. All right, so we pick up in Macedonia, and the first thing, and guys, I don't have a clicker, so we're just going to we're gonna have to roll. Points one, two, three. I kept it simple. I knew this was happening, so I kept it simple. We got one, two, three. Point one, God delights to save those who have everything. Those who walked into church today and needed nothing, those who walked into church today and really felt like walking into church, just adding, just, just being in this experience, 
added to the just treasure trove of righteousness and salvation you've already had because you feel like you've gotten there already. Jesus, God himself, the Father, delights to save those who have everything. Read with me verses 11 through 15 of chapter 16 in the book of Acts. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following uh, the following day to Neapolis and there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days and on the Sabbath day we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come, stay at my house. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia was a woman who had everything, which is really hard to say back in this day. There weren't a lot of women who felt like and could say that they had everything. But this is kind of where we stretch into as we start to go beyond the concentric circles of mere Jerusalem and get out of the Jewish society and begin to enter into Gentiles and societies, we start to see people of different life and different culture, and we see a woman who had literally everything. Lydia was a woman of wealth. We see this in the verses we read. She was, first of all, she was living in Philippi, which would be like a New York City sort of experience. It wouldn't be cheap to live in Philippi. As, a, as we can see there in verse 12, it was a leading city of the district of Macedonia. Oh, and guess what? It was also a Roman calling. Romans didn't like to be very behind people. They weren't settling for second place in the Olympics. That was a leading city in the Roman colony. And also you can see she was a seller of purple goods. She made a lot of money. And the crazy thing is she was from Thyatira. It's kind of this combined... Uh, like living situation you can even feel or, or sense she was in Philippi but she was from Thyatira she was selling a good that was often traded in that area and a, and a good that was actually pretty expensive to buy so you can imagine she was a trader she traded from Thyatira which would be like the LA to the New York if you think about that so she was living in LA she was from New York and she was selling a really expensive commodity she was a trader she made it well. She had a lot of money. There's good reason to believe she probably even had houses in both cities. And this is uh, probably even leaned on a little bit because throughout these three stories, you see her hospitality. She was very open to having people, many people in her home. She probably had a large enough home to host a good host of people. But it wasn't just wealth that she had. She also had status. Of course, being in a city that's as well known as Philippi and Thyatira and selling purple goods, which could have even been tied to royalty at that point. We don't really know. But even that idea of selling purple goods meant she was probably in contact with some really high up kinds of people. The customers that she was engaging with were people who were interested in buying a brand new uh, set of purple goods, which actually 
It, there's good reason to believe that the kind of technology she was using to dye the purple was like cutting edge. She may have even invented it. We don't really know. But is that kind of a, an idea for, for her? She had status. I did a little digging because I, I made one connection, then I found out there's a, a deeper connection. I don't know if you remember this from chapter 13, verse 50. I'll point you back to it real quick. Uh, back when Paul and Barnabas uh, were actually being persecuted, uh, this was in a Jewish area. We started to see this little notion, because I picked up on, uh, is this the first kind of prominent woman that we've picked up in our story of Acts? Well, no, I was, I was remember there were leading women who actually pushed the charge of Paul and uh, Barnabas's uh, persecution. If you remember from 1350, uh, you can look there. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing, which was interesting. I, I really I hadn't picked that up quite honestly. Uh, Lydia here is a uh, is a is a Jew. We'll see here. She was at least a practicing Jew. We don't know if she was a uh, a national Jew, but she was certainly a practicing Jew to some degree here. And maybe maybe Lydia could have even been a part of in some way those kind of groups of women who were very prominent, who had power. We don't really know. Um, but. Hang, hang your hats. Seven, chapter 17, go a little forward now. 17, verse 4. A uh, little, little depiction here. Uh, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Interesting. So I don't, just hang on to your hats. I, I'm not going to develop an entire theology. Just know that that's there. It's pretty cool. So needless to say, there's good reason to think that Lydia actually had a lot of status, maybe even a lot of power. But she also certainly had her religion. So she had wealth, she had status, and it's very clear she had religion, which worked in her favor as well. On the Sabbath day in verse 13, they went outside the gate to the riverside, and they're just poking around trying to find the place of a prayer. It being a Roman colony, it may not have been fully settled for the Jews. We don't really know. Paul and Barnabas maybe, uh, or Paul and Silas maybe need a little bit of word. They need to do some, some street digging to try to find out when do these people meet. Oh, it's down by the riverside on the Sabbath day. You'll see them. And who's there? It's a, a gathering of, of women. Guys, to be honest, I, I kind of read that as a little bit of an indictment. I don't know. Just knowing like men in my own society, men in my tendency... You know, you, you see women gathered there in a devout place of prayer, and I say, like, where were the dudes? And I don't have answers, but I'm just going to throw that out there as a little seed, uh, a little seed thought to just think about. Um, we should we should be leading the charge in prayer, uh, but we also see that this was more than likely false worship as well. We shouldn't be leading in false worship. That's probably not. Maybe that's what they were doing. Maybe the guys were like, no, nah, we're all Christians. I don't. I doubt it, but. I think they're all probably playing like Call of Duty or like playing FIFA or something like that. I don't know. That's probably in my imagination. That's what's going on. All right, but they certain she certainly had her religion. Uh, go down to verse 14. She was a worshiper of God, which is another interesting phrase. If you remember Cornelius, Cornelius was uh, hinted at even before his conversion as being a God fearer. So here we have at least Lydia, who maybe. Certainly practicing, but maybe even searching. Maybe even hunting for something a little bit more than what religion had to offer. We don't really know. There's not a lot of detail. But we certainly know that she was intent on practicing her religion. With her status, with her wealth, 
it would probably be very important for her to hang around with the religious group of well, especially if prominent women, at least the Jewish women and then also uh, the Macedonian women, were gaining some aspect of power. It made sense, right? Use your church, leverage your power, leverage your resources, your relationships for more power. It makes sense. And oh, how subtle it can be for us as well to sneak into our church, to sneak into our community groups, to sneak into our tables where we're actually trying to make disciples to sneak in power of the religious sort. But the amazing thing is what we hear from from Luke in this account is that the Lord, even still, the Lord had to do for her what Lydia could not do for herself, even having everything having everything this world could ever dream of, yet she could not do the one thing that her soul desperately needed, the thing money and status and religion cannot buy. It cannot buy you eternal life. It cannot buy you righteousness with God. And so we see in verse uh, 14 at the end that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul, a clear preacher of the gospel, who was uh, at least not an eyewitness to the resurrection, at least in the early days, but at least in his conversion experience, he was a direct eyewitness to the resurrected Savior as well. And he said, listen, the God we serve is living. We don't serve the God who is dead. We don't serve the God of bank account. We don't serve the God of power. We don't serve the God of status and rank. We serve a God who was once dead but has now been made alive, who has triumphed over the greatest foe that we've ever experienced, death itself. We see this clearly in her willingness to lay aside all of the things that might rival attention or rival for salvation in her own life. It would be easy for her to think, I've made it. What more do I need? You need life when you die. That's what you need. There's only one person who can do that, Jesus himself. And in light of that message, she's able to repent of all the things that she could easily lean on in this life. You see that in verse 15, after she was baptized, her and her whole household as well. It's, it's, it's a little, if you read that quick, you're going to miss some of the significance of what, of what baptism actually signifies. Baptism signifies a death. Baptism signifies a a squeezing out or a suffocation of life. Baptism is first and foremost a drowning before it's anything else. And so we see here she was baptized. She repented of all the things that she could lean on and said in relation to wealth, in relation to status, in relation to all my religion, drown that guy. Drown that person suffocate the life out of that person who's leaning on those things that will only lead to death in the end anyway. And in that moment, she was then made alive in Jesus. Having Jesus in all that he is, she needed nothing else that she was previously trusted in. My friend, this is such a, 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 um, a message for us. How often do you and I lean on our successes for any kind of righteousness, for any kind of status, not just before God, certainly before God, but also before others. I've made it. Well, I've certainly made it more than she's made it. I've certainly made it further along than he's made it. We lean on things like our education and say, well, my degree matters. 
I'm smarter. I'm better. I'm further along. I deserve fill in the blank. Stupid things like our manners, the way we conduct ourselves, the way we were raised, our rhetoric, our language, our competency, the relationships that we bring around us and say, I know I might miss it, but hey, this person clearly wouldn't miss it. This is an awesome person. And we surround ourselves with relationships that validate our own status or our own self-righteousness. Our financial security, our cleanness, our heritage, our comforts. You go down the list and we have a thousand things that we, especially in the West, especially as mostly predominantly white evangelical middle class people, we have a lot of things that we can hang on to and say, I've come pretty far. I, I, I know I need Jesus a little bit, but I mean, look at all that I've built. Not knowing, not knowing that the only way to salvation is through a death to all of those other things and a clinging on to salvation on the feet of Jesus. It and it alone. And we see this beautiful testament, but also maybe a challenge to us who have everything. God delights to save those who have everything, which means we must be people who are actually willing to repent of all that we have so that we might cling on to Jesus only. We would be the first in line to, as, God, as Jesus indicated to the rich young ruler, to sell all of our goods and give to the poor. And you said, that's crazy to forsake father and mother and follow Jesus. You say, that's crazy to give up everything that we live by so that we might die and be raised again in Jesus. You say, that's crazy. No, my friends, it's salvation. It's all we have. The things that we cling on to that Lydia had were not furthering her along in salvation. They were rather hindering her. Do you understand that? They were keeping her from Jesus. They were not getting her to Jesus. As one pastor says, what keeps us from Jesus is not the sin we know we have, but the righteousness we think we have. (laughs) Better in many ways, to have to start with nothing and cling to Jesus than to have everything and be dead in the end. Or as Jesus says, better to lose your life for my sake. It's amazing. Praise God that he delights to save people like Lydia who knocks all the props from out from underneath her and says, all you have is me, all you need is me. He would look the same thing and say, I delight to save you from the stuff that you have. I I literally, I, I want to save you from the things that you own, that you've built, the successes you've made, the education that you lean on. I want to save you from those things and give you only myself. And that certainly doesn't mean that we can't 
use the things that God has given us. We'll see a little bit later on. Lydia then turns the instruments that were used against her into instruments of righteousness and begins practicing things like hospitality in, in her home. That's amazing. Okay, that serves the kingdom of God. That's great. The, that, those are aspects of dying because now Lydia is not enjoying the gift that God has given her alone. She's saying, it's not mine anyway. I've died to those things. You can have it. I'll share it with you. It's all yours. Stay. I love the, at the end of verse uh, 15, it says, and she prevailed upon us. I don't know exactly what that means, but I feel like that's pretty strong language, right? She prevailed upon us. <laughs> that woman prevaileth. She was always there. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I feel like that's pretty strong. She was easily giving up everything so that she might be made nothing. It's beautiful. My friend, if that's you, Jesus delights to save you. It's beautiful. He delights to save you, but it's saving you from yourself. He's not giving you back yourself. He's saving you from the things that you would normally prop up and say, I'm good. No, my friend. But we see another salvation experience here in verses 16 through 24. God delights, number two, God delights to save those who have nothing. Nothing. Verse 16, as we were going from the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. I take that to be like a sarcastic kind of view. I don't, I don't take that as like a, he's telling the truth. I actually think he's, he's making a little bit of uh, the, whoever's filling her is making some sort of sarcastic um, uh, cry as to like explain that this is a cult kind of thing. It's a, it's a mockery kind of presenting, this is a cult. These people are weird. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, we'll talk about that, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. When they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to, be ke- uh, to keep them safely. And we'll stop there. To say that this one had nothing is quite an understatement, because actually she had a lot. But it wouldn't be anything that any of us would say is something. First of all, she had a demon. That's one thing. Secondly, she had abusive and exploitive owners. And she had a title that may have stuck with her for much longer than she wanted. She was a slave. Again, to say that she had nothing might be an, an understatement there. 
there's also good indication that out of this experience, this slave girl actually is born again. It's not really present in the text. It's a little speculation if I'm being really honest, but if I had to make a guess, I would say we're, we're going to see this young one in heaven one day, and I, I'll be looking for her. I think there's a couple reasons that might indicate that she actually had faith. Uh, if you go, first of all, to the, the response to her, uh, the, the response of her owners makes it pretty clear uh, that this wasn't just a one-time kind of thing, that this was a kind of a permanent thing. Uh, you go down to verse 19, you can kind of see this. Her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. This is actually pretty fascinating. Uh, in verse 18, you have this idea of uh, come out. You have it two times. Jesus, uh, Paul says, I, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her, and it came out. Uh, the Greek word for that is excelthane, which means nothing to you. Only that in verse 19, the owners saw that their hope excelthaned. So as the spirit went out of her, so did the hope of financial gain for her owners. Excelthaned gone. Done. It was over. Totally gone out. A little bit of speculation here. There's a, if you go to Matthew 12, I didn't, I didn't quote it. I, I'm, I'll be real honest with you. I'm not too up on my uh, demonology. I had to do a little study this week. Uh, a little brutal. It's not, not the easiest thing to study up on. Uh, not kind of the most fun. It gets a little spooky. It's a dark hole on YouTube. Just be careful. I've experienced that. But in Matthew 12, Jesus offhanded makes a, an interesting statement about the idea of demon possession that I think is, is kind of helpful here. Um, there's an idea in Matthew 12:45, you can look it up, that really in a conversion experience, there's, there's no way for a demon to come back. Conversely, if it's not a conversion experience, there, the likeliness of a demon actually coming back and then bringing his buddies is very likely, probable. It actually happens quite frequently, supposedly from Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 45. Basically, the idea is the, the demons, it, it's, it's, again, I'm, I feel like I could have done a lot more study here, but I felt like it was kind of sidetracked. Demons look for, it's quote, waterless places, which you're, if you're up on baptism theology, I just bracket that aside. I believe that the reason the demon didn't come back is because when the demon came back, he didn't find a waterless place in her heart. That's kind of the idea. He found a full house. And so he said, I'm out. And the owners recognized that it was a permanent thing, and they said, our hope is gone. Excel thing. Out. Beyond that, it made notice, the second thing, it, the response of the Romans is actually pretty clear as well. They pick up on this cult-like language, and in verse 21, uh, they seem to make it pretty clear. Uh, they, advoc they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice, and the Romans throw them in jail. The Romans treat this as like a, you're, you're creating your own cult, which is not something Romans liked in that moment. You couldn't, you couldn't create an alien cult. Not, not going to happen under Roman watch. And so they get thrown in jail. So... Seems, from my perspective, it seems pretty finitive at that moment, the experience, and that everybody kind of knew it. That's why I tend to believe, I think we'll see this young one in heaven. But needless to say, this one was horribly abused and exploited in ways that are unimaginable. In fact, what's amazing is, throughout this text, and having even explaining this thing, what gets lost is the girl herself. 
You, if you're not watching, you miss track of hurt. You lose hurt, which is kind of the saddest thing of all. In the end, the people, the, the, the system, wasn't watching out for hurt. Paul and Silas, they care about hurt, but the system, her owners, they never go around to picking up hurt. They never circle back and say, what happened to the girl though? Is she okay? Is she all right? The amount of exploitation and the amount of abuse is truly startling if you just look at the raw facts. Where does, what happens to the girl? Well, she gets lost in the system shuffle, for sure. Some of you have been brought up in homes where you got lost in the shuffle, where you didn't matter. What mattered was dad and his opinion. Or what mattered was mom and what she wanted. My friends, the Spirit sees you. I go back to chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 10. Paul was led by the Spirit in ways that he couldn't explain because he had assumed that the Spirit was leading him to preach the gospel. And I can't help but think that one of the people, one amongst many, but certainly the eyeballs of the Spirit were on this little girl. And though the girl got lost in the shuffle between her owners and the, and the Jews and the Romans, you know who saw her the whole time? Jesus saw her. And Paul didn't know her name. Paul got annoyed. I actually think that that word annoyed, it's only translated in one other translation as annoyed. There's better translation. It's troubled. He was troubled. I think he got so worked up for her. I think he got so annoyed with the spirit. If you want to say he's annoyed, he was not annoyed with her. He was annoyed with the spirit, which makes sense because he actually says, uh, he turned and said to the spirit, I command you. I think he got perturbed by the spirit. This wasn't about the girl at the moment for, for Paul. Paul was actually had compassion on the girl and said, spirit, get out of here. Some of you grew up in churches where you didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was making the church look good or make the denomination look good or maybe even like in, in light of these, these Romans here, whatever you do, just don't make a scene, please. For the love of God, don't make a scene. Just do right. Be normal. Follow our rules. Do our thing. And what got lost in the shuffle was you. My friend, the Spirit does not act that way. The Spirit delights to save you. He doesn't accidentally save you. He doesn't just cast a wide net and hope you're in it. He targets you just like he targeted this young one here. With his love, with his mercy, and I believe we'll see her in heaven and say, you were targeted too, by his grace. Amazing. Some of you were raised in churches where your conditions were ignored. Where the things, not because of your own sin, but because of the sins of others, your condition was ignored. And my friend, that's not the Spirit. That's just not what the Spirit does. The Spirit has a heart for those who are broken by conditions not their own. You could also say the Spirit also has compassion and mercy and full salvation for those whose troubles are their own. Because you could certainly say this girl certainly had her own sin, but I mean, that's not the point here. 
the point in she was fully saved. The Spirit targeted her specifically when everybody else forgot. My friend, the Spirit doesn't forget you. It's not his business. He doesn't do it that way. Salvation is full. Salvation is final. Salvation is particular for you. Third, God delights to save those who fear that all is lost. We have those who have everything. We have those who have nothing. Then we have those who feel like they had everything, and now all is lost. Look with me in verse 24. Uh, Well, go, go back to verse 23. It kind of picks up there. When they inflicted many blows upon Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Quick note, inner prison, that's that's pretty much as safe as it gets in Rome, right? Um, Also, one of the worst places to be in Rome. Uh, they, they built it like a bunker, so you imagine everything kind of runs downhill. Let's use your imagination. There's no way anybody's getting out if you're in the inner prison. It's the lowest point, literally. But verse 25, at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, which is something that the grace of God can lead you to do, by the way. And the prisoners were listening, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. Make a rule to yourself. Never imprison the apostles. Don't do it. Earthquakes happen right after that. This is the second earthquake that we've picked up when the apostles are imprisoned. Just don't do it. Make a rule. If you see an apostle, leave him alone. Verse 27. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. God delights those who fear that all is lost. Where do you go when all is lost? The amazing thing is, like, I don't think any of us, uh, maybe, maybe you have, I shouldn't say that. Maybe you have. Maybe you've been to the point of holding a knife to your throat. Maybe you've been there. For some of us, though, from week to week, it's, it's a little bit less traumatic than that, yet it's no less real. It's, it's easy at moments to feel like when somebody calls out some sin in your life that all is lost. It's done. I, I've been found out. I've been exposed. It's easy to feel that when you lose your job or 
are laid off or even fired, that your financial stability crumbles and it's easy to feel it's gone, it's lost. Everything we were working for, everything we were building for, it's gone. It's easy to feel like when you're in college or just out of college and you're trying to find that job in your field and you can't, you just can't get it and you're stuck and you feel like all is lost. Why did I do school? Why, God, who have you made me to be? Am I doing the right thing? It's easy at those points to feel like it's gone, it's, it's lost. Why am I alive? When you don't have the grades to get into that program, when your kid goes off the deep end, it's easy to feel like it's gone, I've lost it. When tragedy strikes and you hear the diagnosis, or you get the phone call of the loss of a loved one, or the unforeseeable accident takes place, it's easy at those moments to feel like it's all gone. Where do you go? Is it okay to feel that all is lost and still still somewhere, somehow, be safe? This is what this man experienced in a moment. He had no clue when he went into work that day what would happen. Had no idea. And in a moment, at the night shift, he had a knife to his throat. You've been there. I've been there. Had no idea. And yet in God's weird providence, in whatever situation it is, emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, parentally, it's gone. Is it okay? Are there places where you can be that way, and still be safe? The answer is, praise God, yes. Yes. The question is raised by the Philippian jailer, how can I be saved? How, how can I find salvation in this moment? And I don't know, maybe, maybe the hymns struck a little chord with him. Maybe, maybe he heard something in the lament, but also the praise of those who had also been in this moment where it looked like all was lost, but it felt like they had won. It looked like they had gained even when they lost. And maybe that triggered something in his mind to say, how can I be saved? I, I don't know, we don't get all those points, but the gracious point, and Paul even says, it's okay. We're here. We've stayed put. Well, how can I be saved? Think about it. How can you be saved? When your kid goes off the rails, how can you be saved? You can think of a million reasons. Get him back on the rails. Be better. When, when, finance, when finances crumble, how, how can you get life back on track? Well, I'll find a new job. I'll work a little bit harder. I'll work overtime. I'll do what I need to do. Then I'll be saved. Right? When you can't find the job you want, well, I'll just do more school. I'll go to grad school. That'll get me the degree. That'll land me the job. And then I'll feel like I'm worthy. Is that the answer Paul gives to this man at this moment? How can I be saved? Oh, my friend. Trust trust the one who gives all of his grace so freely. Trust the one who came and died for your sins. 
trust the one who was raised? How can you be saved? When all is found out and your life is lived on a movie screen in front of others and the judgment reigns, how can you be saved? You can be saved because the sins you can't forget, Jesus can't remember. That's how you can be saved. When you feel like your financial stability is crumbling, how can you be saved? You can be saved because God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You can be saved. How can you be saved when you can't find a job in your field? You can hear the words of Jesus as your own words because by faith we believe that you are united to him. You can hear these words from God your Father. You are my beloved son and daughter in whom I am well pleased, regardless of job, regardless of degree. How can you be saved when your kid goes off the deep end? The reality is we can be saved because, honestly, we are much more like the prodigal son than we'd like to believe ourselves. And the father is waiting for us with open arms. and says, I forgive you. I love you. And he runs to meet us. Even when we ran away from him. Even when we found ourselves in the forbidden city, the father was waiting for us and delights to save us. When tragedy strikes, when you hear the diagnosis, when you lose the loved one, it's a wonderful reminder of the immense power of the resurrection. That when dark things happen, the resurrection and the light of the resurrection shines brighter, triumphs over, works power, more powerfully over. It is the power of the resurrection that allows us to be safe. My friends, all of this is to help us to see and believe that God delights to save those who fear that all is lost. This was a man who went before Paul and Barnabas with fear and trembling and said, how can I be saved? My friends, you can't. Because the work of Jesus is already finished and the graces that he pours on your life because of his gospel are immense and free. And you won't understand them in this life. It'll take all of eternity to explore it in the next. God delights to save those who have everything. He delights to save those who have absolutely nothing. And he delights to save people who had stuff and lost it in a moment and feel like all is lost. My friends, that's pretty much all of us. He delights to save you. You are a target of his mercy and a target of his grace. And it means that today and for the rest of your life, he is calling you to simply live in the shadow of his love. Live in the safety of his salvation. Live in the blessedness of his grace. That is your calling here and now. And then like Lydia, share it. The story's not over in verse 35. When it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. Paul gets a little chesty at this moment. The jailer reported these things to Paul, and Paul says, the magistrates have sent you to let you go. Therefore, go out in peace. Paul replies, 
They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do, and do they now throw us out secretly? He gets a little chesty at the moment. I kind of like this from Paul. This is classic Paul. But it's like, no, you guys don't know this, but we're Roman citizens. We have been condemned for nothing, and basically all of this was for naught. You can tell them they can march their rear ends right here and tell us that we're good to go. And it's amazing how quickly it all just goes dark. The police reported, verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, and they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. Hey, get this out, tell no one. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. They had a friend in Lydia, someone who has been changed by grace and shared a little bit in that moment. My friends, may that, may that be the heir of this church. First and foremost for you. That you can come with everything you have and lay it all at the feet of Jesus here. You can come with nothing and be found. You can come in the moments of crisis when it feels like all is lost and be safe. And find people here who are ready just to put you up. Until all, it's all, you all remember that in Jesus it's all going to be okay. May that be the heir and testimony of our church. Let's pray. God, your grace does amaze us. And we pray that it would continue to amaze us even more in the days ahead. Continue to help us to understand, first and foremost, how often we reject and diminish and make light of your grace. But then secondly, Father, give us your grace. Allow us to just enjoy the sweet love that you offer to us freely because of Jesus. And may it transform us. May it wreck us from top to bottom. May it be like death to life. May we be transformed and may the overflow of your love spill out into the love of our family and our friends and our co-workers. May it pour out of us. May it be the air of this church that anyone can come here and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. May it be that kind of throne of grace to people who desperately need it. Jesus, we love you and pray these things through Christ. Amen. So what?